Hi, my name is Jesse Ken, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft these amazing records and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. On this episode, we're going to talk about Bryn Elliott's new EP, Time of Our Lives. It seems like music critics are constantly bemoaning the choices they have when it comes to the pop stars they get thrown at them. They're just never intellectually piqued by them the way they wish they would be. These critics seem to tweet on a monthly schedule. I just want a smart pop artist who talks about real things and has substance. Well, guess what? She's finally here. I don't want to go into all her accolades since everyone interviewed in this podcast is going to gush about them over and over. But what I will say is, I've been lucky enough to spend time with Brynn Elliott, who's the subject of this podcast, and her brain just works better than most people's. She's clear, concise, and the enthusiasm you see everyone around her have is because she's really good to be around. So without further ado, I'm going to let Brynn tell you her story. I started writing songs when I was 16. I really wanted to go to college. My parents didn't go to college. So I was the first one to be like, hey, this is something that I'm really passionate about. And my parents were like, okay, let's Google what a college application is and let's apply. So at the same time that I started writing songs, I was applying to college. And I kind of used all of this energy that I had from applying and at the end of the day would just play music. And that kind of became my my safe place, just like for me to feel human again. This was happening in Atlanta, Georgia, good old Fulton County. So I started writing, I put those songs on my college application. I really wanted to go to Harvard because I felt like I loved books to such a degree, such a nerdy degree that that was gonna be the only place I would fit in socially. <laughs> so I was like, I think I need to go there. I applied didn't get in the first time. And then I applied again after a year, took a year off, did music the whole time. And then I finally got in. And when I went into school, I was just like, okay, I want to do school. And I also want to play as many shows as I possibly can. And I want to write as many songs as I possibly can. Because in high school, I was writing songs about novels I was reading or, well, I was learning about the California gold rush in my history class. And I wrote a song called Gold Dust. So I knew that College was going to be really inspiring song-wise. So that's actually what I ended up doing. I played something like 260 shows throughout my time at school, <laughs> which was amazing. I literally was just like, any show, anywhere, let me do it. And then kind of my junior year was when I started getting into some label conversations. I had a manager, Bruce Floor, who's amazing. And nothing was really feeling right. It was a very hard process, very weird. <laughs> And then I found Atlantic and everything changed. So now that we know Bryn's story, I asked her about what touchstones she has in music and what she really wanted to make with this EP. So I went on this road trip with my dad. We were in the car and we were listening to like local radio. We were, I think we were in Mississippi, grew up in Georgia. So we were just all around the South. This song comes on and it has like the longest intro I've ever heard. At this point, I had only listened to like Jessica Simpson and like pop stuff, which is great. And that's also important to me now but it was the first time I heard like real rock music and it was November rain <laughs> and I just was like dad I was like what is going on what is this and he was like are you kidding me right now because my dad grew up listening to 
Guns N' Roses, Doobie Brothers, the whole kit caboodle. And he was kind of upset at himself for never teaching me. I was like 14, 15 at this point. And so it was kind of from that moment that I got into like rock music and I loved just the anthematic parts of it. And so, yeah, I think I carry that with me today and I play electric guitar and it's a really important part of who I am and my art. So if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, you probably know by now most people are sitting around the house writing songs, but Bryn does it a little bit differently. Yeah, I think for me, it's actually, it's pretty fluid and it's happened every which way. But I will say that for most of the songs on the EP, they all kind of started their beginnings in the classroom. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> So here we go. Here's the nerdy you're part. Gra- you graduated, <laughs> so they can't get mad at you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, no. So each one really has some kind of tie to something I learned in, in a classroom with a bunch of people and a professor or a teacher. And so I would then take those concepts that would be floating around in my head. And, um, you know, I write a lot with Nathan Chapman. He's kind of like the only person I write with. <laughs> At this point, I have such a good relationship with him and he kind of can read my mind. I'll sit down and I'll just like say the word or the concept and he'll just be like, oh, I that's so right. And so we have just a really good vibe. And the way that each of the songs themselves were made um, is kind of different. And we can get into that. I think for everything on this EP, it's the concept that was so important to me that I was communicating things that I really cared about. And then I felt like I was learning about, you know, I think sometimes in school, like you learn stuff and you're like, that's really just not going to help me. And I just spent three hours on this problem and I'm just never going to look at it ever again. And so because I'm so passionate about education, it was really important that I found things that I really wanted to carry with me the rest of my life. So I think some of these songs on EP were kind of like coming from that place and they were really made in that way of like, hey, these are ideas that I think are really important right now is what's going on in our world or what's going on just, you know, on the internet. There's a whole song just about the internet. And then in just in general, when I go to write, it's I'm always looking to write anthems. Like that's something that has always been really, really important to me. And I'll write like quieter songs, but it's definitely not my default. I'm much more inclined to write something kind of like big and um, that has a lot to say and that's powerful and strong because I grew up listening to rock music. Speaking of the classroom, she obviously had to write a thesis to graduate from Harvard, and that played into this record too. So I asked her about the women she wrote her thesis about. You know, I wrote my thesis about two specifically, one named Anne Conway, um, who was a woman. They both were writing in the mid-1600s England, and the only reason they were writing is because they had access to education through their husbands or their fathers. Anne Conway and then Margaret Cavendish was the woman who said... I'm going to publish my own philosophy under my own name, which you didn't do. If you published anything as a woman, you had to take a male name. That was amazing. <laughs> so I wrote my thesis actually just on Anne Conway and she kind of, here we go. We're going deep. She was super not about Descartes, Cartesian philosophy. So simple rough, rough rundown. It's just Descartes came in to the world and said, Hey, the mind and body are separate things. And they, they're really just not the same thing. And she was just like, no, 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 that makes no sense. So I wrote my whole thesis basically about that, about how she kind of had this very strong sense of the unity of the mind and body and and the soul, as they would call it back then. And so I don't really write a song about the unity of the mind and body. 
But I do think that music itself intuitively speaks to that. And I think that's why we have the thing called dancing, you know, which is so important. Also, like I took a lot of existentialist philosophy. Uh, so studying people like Kierkegaard and Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who's an amazing feminist philosopher and Heidegger. I loved them because they were songwriters, you know. They wrote philosophy from a very like metaphorical place. You get some metaphors with like early modern metaphysics, which is which is the women I was talking about. But the existentialists, they're like really digging deep. And so things like Time of Our Lives, like the kind of verses that I wrote for that song is like very much inspired by those existentialists and kind of thinking a little bit outside the box and saying things that are a little weird. Like, I don't believe in the weekend is how this the song starts off. And Sartre has this really like, I would never say this in a song because it's like too much, but he has this phrase from a play called No Exit, like saying like, hell is other people. I'm always searching for those verses, those words that are kind of like, Oh, like that's a really weird way to say something that's so true to my existence. And it's almost like Beatles-esque, right? Of like they're they're saying things that are so simple, right? And but they're so real. And I think if existentialists and the Beatles, you know, got together, they would make really weird simple phrases, <laughs> you know, in songs. And that's so that's what I'm kind of trying to do there. So we know about where Bryn gets her lyrical inspiration now, but what about what she writes on musically? It's either or. My natural inclination is always to go to guitar because it was the first instrument that I feel most connected to, I think, because I taught myself. And it's kind of like, you know, when you go through those experiences where it's kind of really intense, I would like look up a a song like that I liked when I was growing up and I would look up the chords and I would Google like how to play an A minor chord. And there'd be this amazing human being on the other side of the screen who made a two and a half minute tutorial of how to play an A minor chord. Those people are my heroes because they taught me guitar. And I just think it was a really intense time, partly because I was applying to college and my life felt like a resume, but also because I just like sat down to learn this stuff. And it just feel like you get those connections with the instruments that you've kind of had a brutal time with. And it was a little brutal. Like it was it was hard because I was just trying to figure it out. And oh, also part of that is because the first song, the first first song I ever wrote was on a guitar. And it was about a woman in high school who I was really, really close to, who's almost like a, another grandmother to me. She was just a neighbor and, and she passed away. And I had spent so much time with her and I just wrote that song. I was like, I need to write because I have feelings. <laughs> and so I think that instrument will always have that pull for me because it's the first place I went and learned and kind of started this journey of being a songwriter. Piano, I think, is the most beautiful instrument on this planet. I think there's there's such beauty in it. And so um, it's funny. It's like I'm more drawn to writing on guitar, but I want things to sound more piano based. So I don't know how to explain that. But, you know, and they, they kind of go together, too, of course. We heard Bryn talking before about her collaboration with Nathan Chapman. So I wanted to figure out how they met and came to work together. Oh, my gosh. It's the funniest story. So actually, Mark Roberge from OAR set us up. I was opening for OAR and he was like, you have got to meet my friend Nathan. And I was like, cool. Okay. So I ended up meeting him. And the first day that we wrote together was the day, it was three days after I broke up 
with this guy. And before this, you have to know that like, because I was very like in my nerdy world, I did not want to write songs about boys. And I was also like trying to be an empowered female. And I was like, I don't want to just do that. I just don't want to write about boys. They have too much (laughs) airtime. So I hadn't, I was like very much conflicted because I was like, I'm feeling all of these feelings. I went through this breakup and I don't know what to do. So I sat down in Nathan's little room. We sat there talking and he was like, how do you feel about just writing like a breakup song? And I was like, Nathan, you have found me. You've caught me at a really good time for that. Yes. Let me do it. And we actually, I started telling him all about like this boy and how this relationship had gotten really competitive and how I was like traveling a lot for shows and this guy didn't like that and felt like I needed to spend more time with him. And and I just felt like I had to really dim my light and not be myself around this guy. And then I started telling him about these classes I was in at the moment. And one of them was this class about women philosophers in the 1600s England. And they were women who said, you know what? It's not really a thing for women to write philosophy right now, but we're going to do it anyway. And we don't really care what other people think. And so I was just kind of like in this moment and I was like, it doesn't matter if like people don't like these women or and. I was like, people might not like me. And then Nathan was like, oh my gosh. And then we wrote the song in 15 minutes. So we wrote Might Not Like Me just from that, those experiences I was going through that day. And I just think that that was the most incredible first song to write together because it kind of set the tone of like, hey, I think we have something really special as a duo. Yeah, it just kind of spiraled from there. I wanted to get a little bit deeper about how their collaboration works and how the ideas form. I always am writing and I'm always like on my voice app on the phone. I'm coming up with melodies and just in virtue of his life being a songwriter, he's always coming up with ideas. But when we come together, we're pretty much together and we're like, we're going to finish a song and and we're going to make it today. But all of the songs are just us. I've written with other people and it's funny how it just kind of ended up being the songs that were just the two of us. And now Pete Gambarg, the head of A&R at Atlantic Records, had a little bit of insight on why this collaboration works so well. She's an artist who can write the songs herself, so I don't need to pitch outside songs to her. And we were lucky enough on this first EP for her to do many sessions with another friend of ours, Nathan Chapman, in Nashville, who we had worked with here at Atlantic shortly after I got here 10 years ago with the Country Act but who's probably best known for producing the first several Taylor Swift albums and co-writing a lot of that material. And so he understands how to work with a young woman who is finding her own voice. And I think he did a great job with that with Bryn. So for me, my job was more to listen to the body of work that they created and to try to distill um, the perfect five-song statement as a debut EP. So one of the hardest things as an artist is a blank slate. And when you haven't put out an EP before, you have these infinite options of where your sound could go. So I wanted to start figuring out how they came to find this sound for Bryn. Well, we went through a whole, actually for one of the songs, and I'll tell this story for Time of Our Lives, we went through a whole moment where we were like, what's my sound? And we had some John Mary type situations going on, and that was really interesting and weird and not because John Mayer is weird. John Mayer is amazing, but because I don't, I'm not John Mayer. One of the first songs I wrote that was a pop song was Might Not Like Me. And 
it kind of morphed itself into this like 80s synth pop anthem. And I think that was kind of the defining sound for the rest of the EP, which is just like, let's try to make everything sound pretty big, but also a little bit of like synth flair happening all over the place. And Nathan had just got, I wish I knew the actual synth name, but had gotten this new synth right when we started writing Internet You and stuff. And he was like, I want to I want to use it. And I've always loved like Cindy Lauper and just kind of like 80s power lady jams. So I kind of was like, let's do the anthematic thing also with the 80s thing. Also something that could translate live with a rock band. And that was kind of where the sounds came from. It's always funny because musicians always say the equipment doesn't matter. But sometimes the equipment is really inspiring. Here's Nathan talking about those synths and how it shaped the sound. Yeah, well, at one point, uh, about halfway through the production, I felt like I had kind of exhausted all of the soft synths that I had. And the tones and textures of that were kind of not really doing it for me at a certain point. So I had owned a, a Prophet 6 a while back and had sold it and uh, I bought an, a new one again for this record because I I needed to have those analog synths around. I needed to be able to tap into that sound. It kind of goes back to that, the organic pop feel of her voice. I felt like an analog synth would kind of support her better than some of the soft synths can get a bit brittle and plasticky, you know, when you're trying to recreate those things. So I just went for the real thing again. I will not sell this one again. I, I love that keyboard. But finding a sound takes more than just play with some synth patches. So I wanted to see what happened behind the scenes to shape this EP. Here's Bryn on how they found that more organic feeling in her music. What's interesting because playing live is so important to me because I told you like I was just playing all the time and I played guitar and piano. And when we go to write a song, it was funny, like we wrote My Not Like Me on acoustic guitar in 15 minutes. And then we would start writing other songs and we, I would kind of be at the computer, like and Nathan would be at the computer and I would be trying to figure it out. And Nathan already knows what's up with Pro Tools. And we kind of looked at each other one day and we were like, we can't do that. Like, that's not healthy <laughs> for us as songwriters. Like we need to stick with starting with something raw and real. And just writing real songs. That's kind of always our goal. And that's definitely always my goal. So we wrote My Not Like Me and Internet You and Time of Our Lives kind of all that way. And I think the sounds kind of developed as we got to know each other more. And once Nathan kind of saw me play live, it was like what you'll hear in the record is, you know, My Not Like Me is very synth pop based. And that was always something that we were both down. But then as you hear kind of later time of our lives has a little bit more electric guitar on it and you know tongue tied is just me and a piano vocal and we had lots of freakouts about what my sound was but we kind of were overthinking it a bit and i think each song kind of needed something different and then at the end if you look at them they all kind of go together and they're all kind of different sides of me so having a piano vocal was really important to me because that's something i do i just sit down at a piano and i can sing in front of people i wanted something simple like that and we had a version of it that was very like Hawaiian and like ukulele. It just wasn't right. So we just decided to be simple with that. Time of Our Lives has that electric driving guitar throughout the whole thing. So which is kind of reflective of my live show. Yeah, My Not Like Me and Internet, you are kind of these synth worlds that I love. I mean, I we will sit and listen to since sounds all day to get the right ones and so yeah somewhere in between 80s pop rock is the main inspiration kind of based off of what i was just saying with the 
with the synths and the guitars. But Nathan was just like, what is your sound as an artist? Because I didn't really come from a tradition. I came from being a girl who loved like pop music that was on Disney Channel growing up, but then also being introduced to rock music. And I learned how to play guitar on YouTube. I just was kind of like, I love good songs. <laughs> and I just want to write songs that are good. He was like, no, but we have to have like a sound and a, and a vibe. And I was like, I think we have it. And so it was like four days we took one one of these songs that we wrote and we like produced it every which way you could imagine. Like I told you, it was the John Mayer thing. There was an orchestra pop thing going on. And it all just felt very forced because, you know, I don't play violin. So orchestra pop's not going to fly. I don't come from this amazing jazz tradition like John Mayer. So I was like, I really just want to write simple anthems. That's really it. <laughs> and like, that's all I know to do. And so... We were just kind of like, oh, whatever. Okay. One day I was talking to my mom, the the end of this four day trial period in the desert. It was so intense. Where in the desert were you guys? We were not in the desert, but we were in a metaphorical desert. Uh, we gotcha. were in the desert of Nashville songwriting. And I just looked at Nathan and I said, we need to not overthink it. We need to just write something that we know. We know when it's good. I think there are certain people that you work with, especially when it, in the music industry, where it's like there isn't like explicit language. And I think that's what we're all trying to find. And I was like, Nathan, we're here. We got it. It's we don't need to talk about it. Let's just do it. And we started this riff. It started off as like life goes on. We were like, mm. and there was this there's this Robert Frost poem that's like talking about life going on. And he even says that. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to write a song like the Robert, Robert Frost poem. But then something that my mom said really stuck with me, which is like I was about to go into my senior year. This was last summer. And I was talking to all my friends like on FaceTime and we we're like freaking out. Like, this is so scary. This is our last year of college. I'm seeing like a lot of my friends who were a little bit older than me, like graduate on Facebook and they're all like crying and their families are all there. And I'm just like, I was like, Nathan, I'm just in this moment where it's like, I just need to be really present. And I want to go into this year, this next year, and just like soak up every moment with my friends and with this incredible experience that I've been afforded at college that, you know, my parents didn't get. And I just want to be like really in it. And so we, we changed the lyrics to time of our lives because my mom said, like, I just want you to have the time of your life this next year. And so really, my mom wrote the song. Question is, did she get a cut? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're just going to go with that. She'll get, yeah, she gets a forever cut <laughs> of everything because I owe her so much, both her and my dad. But it just turned into this like anthem from that. It happened so fast. And then sound wise, we just let loose so much to the point where Nathan had these big like plastic bins in the room we were writing in full of like books and like just stuff. And I was like, I looked over and I was like, those are our drums. And so I went, and I was like, can I use them? And so there's literally, and I have a video of it somewhere of me just like banging these plastic like containers together to make the drum sound that is still on the song. We were overthinking it so much that we got to the point where we both were like, this, we got to stop. And then we wrote a song and like sounds just came. And we actually worked a long time on that song to get the sound right, especially with kind of like the fusion of guitar and synth. And, and it's hard to put guitar in super thematic pop songs, you know, and that's always, I think, an interesting conversation nowadays. But I was committed to it and, and we did it. 
So with all this soul searching, I was curious if it took a toll on her mental health and if it was ever really a huge struggle. I think from all sectors, I've just gotten the advice of like, just be yourself. And that sounds so simple and everyone's saying it. I think for me, like, you know, my not like me talks about kind of living in fear of other people. So maybe hell is other people. I don't know. But that's definitely something I've struggled with my whole life is just really, really caring way too much about what other people think about me and about saying the right thing or looking the right way. For this EP, like everywhere I was going, even when I walked into this building, it was like, we just want to know the real you. And we want to talk about that. And we want to write songs about that. And so if I'm going to do that, I got to know who I am. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I think we all kind of know who we are intuitively. And, and I think where it gets a little messed up is where we, we run away from that. And so that was the best advice. My parents were really involved in that process of because they know me so well and they would they can just see right through it when I'm not being myself or when I'm a little afraid. And so, yeah, I think it was just like be Bryn. And then those songs came and they were just me. I was talking with one of my friends and who's kind of in the songwriter world. And she heard Alison Krauss talk one time about songwriting. And she said, like, whenever I go to write a song, I always have one message that I'm wanting to write. And she talked about how, like, it's kind of like hopeful loneliness. Every song is about that in some form or other. And I was thinking about that and I was like, oh, no, I have a similar thing where it's like when I go to write a song, it's all about that moment of self-realization. And I think that's why I love philosophy and, and pop songwriting is because it's like, let's talk about what we're all feeling, what we're all experiencing. And I, yeah, I'm trying to take it to that place where it's like, oh my gosh, the internet is fake. I don't want to be fake, you know, or, oh my goodness, I am so grateful for my friends and what's happening in our lives right now. Let's just be in it. Right. Which is just like, let's just be together in ourselves. Might not like me is just be yourself. And so I just think that like that advice turned into songs. And so it's simple, but it's sometimes the simplest stuff is the heaviest. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of the season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm uh, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. So next I wanted to turn to Nathan since he had a lot of really interesting insight on how to shape Bryn's sound. 
We wrote about 14, 15 songs or so for the five-song EP. We went a lot of different places musically, and it took us a few songs to really kind of hone in on exactly what we needed to do. And once we got there and once we knew exactly what the plan was, you know, it really kind of helped get us to the right place. So once we got to that place, we we went back and visited older songs, and, and we kind of knew, okay, this song works or that song doesn't, and this production's cool, but we need to tweak that. And we kind of went for more of, we leaned everything a little bit more electronic. It still has an organic feel to it. Bryn's voice has a very organic feel to it. It's very pop, but it also has a warmth. The instruments needed to reflect that. So there's some guitar in there, but there's also keyboards and synths and the drums kind of go from more organic drums to more electronic drums on like on Internet U is a more electronic kind of feel on the drums. The time of our lives is more organic. We were actually hitting Tupperware lids on the floor and doing crazy stuff to make the time of our lives drums really sound big and and kind of have more of a stomp and organic kind of feel to them. You know, Miss You is kind of somewhere in between all of that. So those were kind of the boundaries. We kind of wanted the organic to be in there, wanted the electronic to be in there. But every time I work with an artist, I try to make sure that the track pivots off of the tone of the vocal because I feel like Brynn has a very, really fantastic pop voice, but she also has this organic warmth to her voice. I wanted the production to reflect all of that and for everything to support her. I hadn't heard that point about supporting the vocal very often, so I asked him to expand upon it. I think that sometimes you just listen, for me, I just listen to the vocal and then I try to like understand the, almost the EQ curve and, and the punchiness of the vocal. When a voice is harsh, you kind of want to make sure that it's not the harshest thing in the track. So you would, maybe that's why like rock singers have this edge to them and then the guitars have an edge to them and that all works, you know, like ACDC, you got this super screamy, awesome raspy voice and the guitars do the same thing. If you're Josh Groban, you want, he's got this beautiful golden set of pipes. So there's orchestra around him and it all kind of works together so for Bryn she just she sounds like when she just sings acapella to me she sounds like my favorite kind of pop music and I just want to make the track be a bigger version of what her voice is doing one example for me from my past work is I was very careful to choose different guitar tones to sit around Taylor Swift's voice when we were doing the like fearless album and stuff because that's just how I think I just I hear the voice and then I want the track to to wrap around that voice and support it and not get in the way kind of just help the voice of the artist just be the thing that you hear. So when you hear the song, you walk away thinking, man, that's such a good singer, as opposed to, wow, that was a really cool synth part, you know? Now that we know what Bryn's all about, I thought it might be cool to hear from her team about how they came to work together. Here's her manager, Bruce Floor. I'd have to check the dates, but I'm going to say three and a half years ago, a gentleman at Paramount Studios, a gentleman by the name of Randy Spenlove, called me and asked me if I would do him a favor and take a meeting with a young artist who was a big fan of a lot of the bands that I'd worked with. Brandy Carlisle, OAR, Alan Stone, etc. He arranged for me to meet with Bryn and we met and had lunch. And Brynn at the time was just finishing her freshman year at Harvard. 
And she proceeded to tell me that she, you know, really loved artists that I worked with and wanted to be a musician and, and sing and, you know, have a career. And I've heard this story many times. We, you know, I've had many people, you know, sit in front of me and play me their songs and tell me that they wanted to be a successful musician. And candidly, nine times out of 10, it's just a polite meeting and you never hear from the artist again. I gave Bryn the six month roadmap of, you know, hey, if you're really serious, you should do this, you should do that. You know, we said goodbye, shook hands. And I thought, well, that was, that was pleasant. That was nice. I got a call from her almost six months to the day later saying, I did what you said. I went and practiced my craft. I played a bunch of shows by myself. I went out on a little tour. I think I'm ready for the next step. And I said, well, what do you think the next step is? And she said, well, I really would like to open for Brandy Carlisle. That's a pretty big next step. And I really appreciated her gusto. So Brandy, who's part of our Red Light family, I called and asked if Brandy would be open to having Bryn play with her in Minneapolis. And Brandy said, sure, she'd be happy to. So Bryn went to Minneapolis and opened for Brandy Carlisle. And Brandy loved her so much, she had her sit in with her and sing with her. I talked to Brandy and her team afterwards and said, how was she? And they said, she's really, really good. I like her a lot. So that was the first indication that I was like, Brynn maybe had something because Brandy is, she's very particular. She's also a world-class artist and doesn't need to do anybody favors. So the next move was, okay, let's start getting her out on the road and start really honing in on her live show because Brynn and I talked about how she can be separated from all the other female artists that are out there, you know, female pop stars, etc. And one of the things that separates Bryn from a lot of other artists is that she plays live and she puts on a real show. It's, you know, part pop, but it's got tinges of rock in there. So we started road testing the show and I had her tour with Alan Stone and Alanis Morissette and OAR and Switchfoot. And she probably did 200 shows during the summer when she was off school. She would play in front of a, a couple thousand people that didn't know who she was and didn't care. And it really kind of taught her being comfortable on stage. It taught her what putting on a show was all about, taught her how to sing live and perform live and also taught her how to handle the road, the, the grind that it is. And now looking back on it, I think gave her kind of a real work ethic of how hard this job really is. Amongst all that, I thought, well, if this continues, and I still wasn't her manager at the time, I was really just giving her advice, you know, consulting her, so to speak. The summer before her senior year, we again did a major tour uh, where she was the first of three. Her and Nathan continued to write songs on off days. Then we released our first song in the fall of, gosh, I don't even know the year. I'd have to check it. Maybe fall of 2016, we released the first song, Might Not Like Me, independently on Spotify and other DSPs. And it started to get some nice traction and some notoriety. And then we sat down and said, okay, it's you're heading into your senior year. Let's make a goal of trying to have a label partner by December so that you can then finish school, graduate, and we can hit the ground running. And I started putting her in front of record executives and many labels, several labels, which you know don't need to be named, but several labels had high interest in Bryn. Wasn't until I was in Nashville and I had Might Not Like Me, Psycho Stupid Crazy, Internet You, Miss You, and a song called Like a Man in, in my back pocket. And I was, gonna, I was starting to play it for labels. And I went 
to a woman named Carla Wallace, who runs a company called Big Yellow Dog. And I went under the guise of talking to her about something else. I had a project in Nashville at the Hutton Hotel where we were building a new venue called Analog, and I wanted her to know about it. And now here's Carla Wallace of Big Yellow Dog Music to tell her side of the story. Played me the just the song itself. Might not like me. I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta like, is there a, a video? And so he, he pulled the video. I don't even know if I said there's a video. Maybe he just played me the video. I think that's what he did. But I remember this original video that she had was so fascinating because you, I couldn't figure out who what she looked like. But the song was such a smash. It was huge. And I just thought, I gotta meet this girl. I gotta see like what's what's her problem. How did you walk in here and play such a smash for me? Like what what's behind this? I just feel like this is shady, right? You can't just walk in here with a smash like that. That's outrageous. People don't they don't just they don't do that. I just I mean we talked obviously about who she was and how he'd been working with her and she wanted a uh, publishing deal and a record deal all at the same time. Did you do that? Anyone that knows me, I'm so particular. Uh, I mean, first off, I like, I didn't, oh, that was the only song I heard. And I was like, yes, I can do that. <laughs> we just signed, we just signed a deal with Atlantic. I mean, like the night before, it was so magical that this all took place. This was like, just a dream. I couldn't believe that. And here's Pete Gadbarg to talk about how he saw things go down. As an A&R guy, right, you're always trying to make sure that you're not missing anything. You're not missing the next great artist because there's so many, not great artists, but there's so many artists. And it's only human nature that you'll get a few, you may miss a few. So sometimes when you miss one and you realize where it came from, you say, hey, how can I avoid making that mistake again? So a few years ago, I have a friend in Nashville. Her name's Carla Wallace. She is an incredible music publisher. She has a company called Big Yellow Dog in Nashville. And Carla has been sending me music for years. She sent me Megan Trainer when Megan was still in high school. She sent me Marin Morris when Marin Morris was not yet 21 years old. And at a certain point, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should start paying more attention to Carla. And she's the greatest person in the world and such a sweetheart and so talented that we started talking about doing a deal together for Big Yellow Dog, her company, and Atlantic Records to be in business together. And around a year and a half ago, we decided that we would try to make that happen. And we did it. We were successful. Big Yellow Dog signed a deal to become a partner of Atlantic Records. And literally, the day after we did that, Carla called me and said, you are not going to believe what just happened to me. And it turns out she had heard the day after signing the Big Yellow Dog deal with Atlantic, she had heard Bryn's music, specifically the song Might Not Like Me for the first time. Well, it was one of these things where she was so excited. She sent it to me and called me like 30 seconds later. What'd you think? I'm like, I haven't listened to it yet. Five minutes later, Carla's on the phone. What'd you think? And I'm like, oh my God, I got to listen to this, right? So when I finally listened to it, it's a one listen song for me. And I said, this is awesome. And she's like, yay, we found one. And it turns out that Bryn is managed by Bruce Floor, who's a good friend of ours who used to manage or still manages the band Switchfoot, who used to be signed here. And Bruce and I have been buddies for a long time. So it was an easy phone call to say, hey, Bruce, why don't we figure out how to make this official? And Bryn Elliott will be the first signing between Big Yellow Dog and Atlantic. And here's Bryn to talk about what happened after she signed to Atlantic. So I had written 
a bunch of songs throughout college. And so the songs that we're about to release are those songs. I just came to Atlantic with them kind of already in tow. And everyone here has been so supportive of me these last six months because I just graduated two months ago. So I signed in January and we've just been working on getting everything together for this first release and doing that whilst I've been in school. And that's just like, (laughs) that's crazy that first of all, that Atlantic would let me do that. And also it's just been an amazing creative journey, just like being in the place where these songs came from, you know, and, and getting ready to release them. Next, I wanted to have Brendan Nathan talk about the song Internet You and give us some deeper insight on it. So this is a song. I took a class about authenticity and we talked about like the Internet and philosophy. And it was it was one of the most amazing classes I ever took. I wrote my essay on the like button. Why? Why do we have a like button? It comes from this deeper need of like wanting to be validated in our lives. And it's like really heavy. And so I always wanted to write a song about the internet. And then it's 2018. I'm in college. I'm dating people. It's not going very well Um, because I'm sitting down in these coffee shops with these guys and like maybe I know them from a mutual friend. So I've like seen their Instagram or I've just not so casually with my friends stalked their Instagram in our dorm room. It's fine, whatever. And I'm seeing them like post these incredible photos. First of all, I'm like, how does that happen? Not sure. I've never been able to do that, like get that game down on Instagram. No idea. Yeah. I'm like, why are you in a safari right now? And how do I get there? But then they would like quote like T.S. Eliot or Margaret Atwood or like all these incredible authors. And I would just sit down with them at coffee and I'd be like, can we talk about Margaret Atwood? Like, I'm such a fan. Like, and they're like, Margo, like Hartwood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tale, you know. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm just like, there's a show right now. Like. Are we not? He's like, oh, I just Googled like a quote about X. And and I'm just like, oh, no, this is not okay. So I just had this moment where I was like, okay, I want to write a song about the Internet. But I think one of the most scary things about the Internet is how it's influencing our relationships. Right. And I think it's because we can curate these beautiful, picturesque, quotable lives you know, and then what, who we are when we sit down is not that person. And I'm like, definitely susceptible to that. Like I do this. So it's not like a judgment thing. It's not like a, Oh, dating so hard. It's just the internet. It's just a hard time. And so, yeah, it's this idea of like, I, I want to fall in love with the person that you are on the internet. It was always a song I'd been wanting to write. And I was like, we're writing it. And yeah, it was one of those songs where it was just a crazy story in that I had had that title for so long, like really since I took that class, it was actually freshman year. So for almost five years. And I think that that's the biggest thing is like never give up on those ideas that 
you think are really good, but it's like maybe it's not the right moment or not the right time. I think if you think it's good, it's probably good. And you should do it. So that was kind of a story that I always keep with me when I go and write, which is like, hey, if you have an idea that you're passionate enough about, you can make it into a song. I mean, it was what was really funny about that process was I thought it was going to be kind of one of those things where like Nathan kind of was like, okay, this is like a girl song. But he had this, I mean, he wasn't dating, but he had the same experience with like people and it was just like, all oh, the people are so obnoxious on the internet. So we both were just like beef, like getting it off our chests, basically. So that was almost the whole first day. <laughs> like we didn't really do much music. We just related on the topic. And we started on the piano and you can kind of feel that in the song. It's a very like synth piano bass song and we started in with a little guitar and then that didn't really fly it was um a song that started with those pretty simple chords three actually three chords and it just kind of morphed into this big thing and i we finished it as i was singing it actually so we kind of had the structure basic structure laid out and we actually had a totally different chorus for it originally that was pretty good one thing i admire most about nathan is he's always he'll never settle so if, if it's pretty good, we're going to be writing a new chorus because <laughs> we want a chorus that he really is committed to those those slamming choruses. And so I think that's the thing I admire about him most, actually. And also it's so frustrating because I'm like, we're in there and it's like, this isn't good enough. And I'm like, no, but it's fine. But no, he's he's amazing in that way. So yeah, the, we finished the chorus the day we finished singing it. And we actually also had a whole different verse. I had this other kind of lyric in my head that I always wanted to put in a song kind of is like uh, I had some friends who would always call me America's sweetheart like I get really excited about things but I'm also kind of like I can hang so I'm always trying to be like the cool hangy person they would always call me America's sweetheart when that part of me would come out and I would always get so upset and so mad so I was like I want to try to find a way to like put America's sweetheart in a song but in a way that's like not cool to kind of like get back at them and so the line is is in there I, I we were like we like had this whole other line and as I was singing it I was like wait I was like, Nathan, I want to write a line that's like America's sweetheart in the land of dreams. Like that's the line that I want to talk about. And then the whole verse kind of like took shape after that. Kind of what you see on the internet, the sort of like ethereal, inaccessible kind of thing. And that was kind of what I wanted to communicate. Because I always felt like when I was called America's sweetheart or George, it just felt inaccessible. It didn't feel real. And so putting that in the song was kind of like a, was like a moment for me. And here's Nathan speaking about shaping the song. Yeah, that was the last one we wrote for the EP. It's the most recent song. She had that concept of, you know, people's lives on and personas online and then who they are in reality. She had that kind of her idea journal that she brings with her. It was just burning those pages up. She needed to write that song really bad. And that was such a perfect thing to talk about right now because, uh, you know, just from a, where we are as humans in modern culture, that is something that we need to think about. And I feel like the story kind of talks about that without it being preachy. Musically, we wanted to have something that was like, that's the more electronic leaning, kind of the darker song on the on the EP. And we just felt like that fit that message. It's just, it was like a kind of a sobering moment to think about that. And we wanted the, the music and the melody to kind of reflect that. I've never been this way before. So stuck in my mind Every time I look in your eyes You're looking in the mine And if you kiss me I think I'd explode 
From the weight of this joy, you got my brain lit up electric. All I'm hearing is noise. I can't put you into words. And now I wanted to talk about the song Tongue Tied. When I was in high school, it's pretty obvious at this point that I'm a little bit of a nerd. And I had this whole like geek out session over Leonardo da Vinci because I just thought he was so fascinating. And the fact that he like painted and did science and did, you know, wrote poetry. It's just like, guys, unreal. And I just have always been fascinated. And so when I walked in one morning to Nathan's writing room, I, I sat down and he was like mid sentence, like didn't even, say, we weren't even like, there was no, Hey, how are you doing? It was like, Oh my gosh, Leonardo da Vinci. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> and I was like, Nathan, I really want to write a really sweet love song today. And I was like, what if we, what if we wrote something that was like, that had like Leonardo in it? Yeah. We kind of came up with that line, which is like in the chorus where like only Leonardo can articulate how I'm feeling about this other person. And the other part of the story, which is really hilarious, which I'm not trying to go talk about this, but I met this like monk at school. I don't know what kind of monk he was, but he was like a philosophy person. And I was just so fascinated by this person. And you ever meet people where you're like, you are so amazing. I can't even talk around you. Like, I don't know if I was in love with him, but I was just so like, because he's monk, which is so special and beautiful. And it was just so amazing. And I was like, oh, I love that. So I put lines in the song, like just that feeling of like, wow, you've given me like this vow of silence. Like I can't even talk around you because you're so amazing. So that was kind of like a funny story. Song semi about me falling in love with a monk. But um, <laughs> we'll just keep that on the down though. But it's totally fine if it's out there. It's like we had a, a ukulele version of it. We were trying to like maybe do like a Colby Calais situation. And, you know, the first pass was a piano vocal and that's how we wrote it. You know, this, this is going to be so horrible and it's going to show my lack of musical knowledge, but you know, the song that they play at weddings, it's called, it's like, yes. And I don't know it either. And I, I, okay. <laughs> so, 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 cool. you're, you're fine. If between the two it's of us, we can't figure it out. Yeah. It's, yeah, you yeah. know, it's a concerto in D of some sort. And, um, we were like, wouldn't it be funny if we wrote a love song with those chords, which I'm sure has been done like a bazillion times. <laughs> but we kind of did that with, with, the chords and they're kind of funky and and a little beatlesy which i i'm always looking out for so so yeah it's just always been a piano vocal which i love because i can just go sit down and and sing it wherever i am and here's nathan talking about writing with bryn well bryn being a harvard grad now but at the time she was a harvard student and she just comes into a writing session with just a different perspective of what it means to write a lyric. You know, she's she's been trained and educated to, to look at word crafting and writing and reading from the highest level. And uh, I could kind of keep up, you know, because I went to a small school in Tennessee, but really just kind of looking for, for lyrics that were in the right space for where her mind was because she would leave school and come to write, and but also make sure that, that what we were writing felt like it connected with like the basics of the human experience, you know. We weren't trying to be complicated. We were trying to just articulate the human experience, whether it's relationships or breakups or any of that kind of stuff, just from an angle that worked for 
where she was in her life and what she was doing every day at Harvard. And I think that's why some of the lyrics like have kind of a, a different flair to them. Like on Tongue Tied, the line about Leonardo da Vinci. I love that kind of stuff. I love pushing the boundaries on a lyric for how far you can take something in any direction. We were trying to take things to a place that was just that higher level of articulation. So we could say one thing and it would mean everything. Lastly, I wanted to talk to some of the people who know Bryn best about what they find to be unique about her. Here's Bruce for her manager to talk about that a bit. Well, I will tell you that I've never, I've never seen a young artist where the education, and regardless of whether or not she went to Harvard or Cal State U, the work ethic that she has inherited or had to have, right? We'd be on tour. I'd be like, Brian is trying to get on stage. She goes, hang on one second. I, I'm almost done. And she'd have to push send on a 12-page term paper before taking the stage. The balance between having a college life as demanding as Harvard is and having the demands of being a musician and an artist, her ability to walk both sides has been very impressive and served her well as she's able to approach this thing methodically. She's definitely using her instincts. She's very smart, and I appreciate that. She knows the good, the bad, the ugly. She's not naive to the fact that not every day is going to be the best day ever. And she also knows that in order for people to hear her music, She's got to work. She, you know, we joke that she's on a campaign trail right now running for president, right? Every hand she shakes is 10 people she hasn't met. And here's Pete Ganbarg talking about Bryn's perseverance. Yeah, I think the fact that, you know, not only did she just graduate and graduate from Harvard, but she's the first person in her family to go to college. She was also homeschooled. And when she was finishing up her homeschooling, she applied to Harvard and she got rejected. Not deferred, not waitlisted rejected. Any other kid would say, okay, I'll, I'll apply to, I'll have a safe school or I'll... Not Bryn. Bryn said, all right, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to apply again. She went out to Portland, Oregon. She met a producer out there, uh, a guy who's had a lot of hits over the years. And she workshopped for a year on her craft, on her writing, on her songs, and then was able to use that as part of her application process to tell Harvard what she had been doing between last time and this time. And this time she was accepted. And I think that really shows her perseverance and her, you know, ability to say, yeah, I don't care if you're saying rejected, give me a minute and I'll be back. You know, we work with several artists who have been signed to other record companies and dropped. And when you are dropped from your recording deal, assuming you haven't had success and you're just dropped because either you couldn't figure it out or they couldn't figure it out, you couldn't find your audience. The day that you find out you're dropped, most of the time is a very low moment. At a certain point, most artists then dust themselves off and they figure out, okay, I've fallen down, I'm going to get up, I'm going to dust myself off and I'm going to figure out what's next. And the same perseverance that Bryn showed after receiving her rejection in the mail from college. I work with artists all the time here who were signed, who were rejected, and then came back guns a-blazing, saying, you know what? They were right to drop me because I wasn't ready. Now I'm ready. Let's go. And here's Carla on what makes Bryn so unique. First of all, I don't see that many people walk in with a hit <laughs> as, a, as a songwriter. You just don't, you just don't walk in with that. That's such a, a gift. It was a gift that, that's why I was like looking at Bruce, like, is he joking? Is there like, is some guy going to jump out of the wall with a camera and be like, oh, we got you, you know, she doesn't exist. She's not real. You know, I just, I don't know. I just couldn't believe that something like this would, what could happen. And, uh, 
But then just getting to know who she is, she's such an authentic person. She's such a deep rooted individual that has a great family. And I don't know, I don't know if you could say thoughtful is, is unique. Her ability to just take simple things in life and turn it into something that everyone wants to hear and can be empowering at the same time is pretty unique. Sitting here alone, flipping through my phone, wondering what you're doing. Thanks so much for listening. To find more of our podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Brun Elliott's Time of Our Lives EP is out now on all formats. Thanks for listening.